Proverbs chapter 3. We will be looking at verses 19 to 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. So far in our study, we have considered both the blessings and value of wisdom. Wisdom, as we have seen, is valuable. It is more precious than silver and gold. Wisdom, or we could even say God, is the source of consistent happiness. And by consistent happiness, I mean that type of happiness that's able to withstand grief and sorrow and pain, even persecution. It is resilient in the midst of a fallen world. Now, having considered the value of wisdom to man in verses 13 to 18, in the verses that we have before us today, we want to consider the value of wisdom to God. See, based on our text, we want to examine the subject of the wisdom of God in creation. Solomon again writes, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Solomon again says that the Lord is the one who created all things, both visible and invisible. He begins, as it were, with the earth. In our text, it says that the Lord founded the earth. Now, the word translated as founded means to fix or to establish. You hear the word foundation in it. It is often used in reference to the establishment of the temple in passages such as 2 Chronicles 3, verse 3. That passage of Scripture states, Now, these are the foundations which Solomon laid, that's our word again, for building the house of God. The length in cubits, according to the old standard, was 60 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits. And so this word is used in the context of building, in the context of creation. In other words, what Solomon says is that the Lord created the earth and everything in it. The mountains, the oceans, the beaches, the jungles, the plants, the animals, even man. God created them all. Now, moving on, Solomon says that the Lord also created the heavens. And when we see the term heaven being used in the scriptures, it is important to know that this word can mean different things depending on the context. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, speaks of a third heaven. 
suggesting that they are three heavens. The Apostle Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. So what are the three heavens? Starting with number three, the third heaven refers to the abode of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes the third heaven as paradise, where words spoken are not permitted to be repeated by men. This is the same paradise that Jesus promised to the thief on the cross after death in Luke 23, verse 43. Now, the second heaven refers to the stars and the planets or to outer space, as in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4 states, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So again, Mars, Saturn, Jupiter, Orion's belt, the Milky Way galaxy, all of that is said to be created by God. And then finally, the first heaven refers to the earth's atmosphere or the sky. It is used in passages such as Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. Again, Matthew 16, 1 to 3 states, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? See, in this passage, the Pharisees and the Sadducees approach Jesus with a challenge. The challenge, of course, is for Christ to do a miracle in the sky. And Jesus' response is, you are very good at reading signs in the sky, but your view should not have been fixated on above, but that which was right in front of you. For there stood in their midst the very one who created the sky. And so the Proverbs, going back to Proverbs 3, some understand verses 19 and 20 to be speaking of Christ's work in creation. That when the text says that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth, that that is a reference specifically to Christ. Now, it is true, as we have already observed, that Christ is the wisdom of God and that all things were created by him. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, of course, states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Very familiar portion. But then again, we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, in speaking of Christ, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so the text says again, by him, the him of course being Christ, all things both in the heavens and on the earth, both visible and invisible, were created. Paul here covers all aspects of the creation. Paul even gives us some examples of some of those invisible things. He mentions what I believe are ranks of angels when he says thrones or dominions. And then as a bookend to the statement, the apostle, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again states that all things have been created through him and for him. And so again, while it is true that the world was created by Christ, who is the wisdom of God, I believe that verses 19 and 20 speak more generally of that divine attribute of God's wisdom. I say this since all three members of the Godhead were active in creation. Now we know, of course, from the scriptures uh, such as Genesis 1.1 and Acts 17.24, that God the Father was active in creation. But the same activity that is spoken of of the Father and of the Son is also spoken of the Spirit. Again, after, right after we read in Genesis 1.1, uh, where we see um, in the beginning God created the earth, we see that the Spirit is present in the creation account in verse 2. The text, the text says that the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Spirit here is pictured as presiding over creation, as hovering over the world as it was, actively engaged in giving and sustaining life. Again, Psalm 104, verses 29 to 30, in reference to animal life, states this, You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And again, concerning 
human life, Elihu says in Job 33, verse 4, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so the creation of the world, as we see, is a Trinitarian effort that really put on display the wisdom of God. Now, if you recall, going all the way back to the beginning of our study in the book of Proverbs, we saw that the Hebrew word used for wisdom denotes skill. Particularly in the book of Exodus, wisdom is it's, it's often mentioned in connection with skillful craftsmanship. And so again, in passages such as Exodus 28, verse 3, it states, You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. And again, concerning Bezalel, it says in Exodus 31, verse 3, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. Now, this is the idea that Solomon conveys in Proverbs chapter 3, that God, as a skillful craftsman, created the world. The universe itself is specifically fine-tuned to support life. And there are constant laws that work in harmony to maintain our fragile existence. But not only is our existence functional, but it is also beautiful. And so there is beauty found in looking at the night sky. The same stars that also helped our ancestors navigate the waters and plan for agriculture and for farming. Again, Solomon says in verse 20 of Proverbs 3 that by his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Now this expression that the deeps were broken up, I believe is a reference to how the oceans and the rivers and the streams came about. They came forth from the interior of the earth. Now, interestingly enough, in an article written by the Smithsonian Science Education Center in 2014, it was uh, entitled, Is There an Ocean Beneath Your Feet? The author gives support to this idea. They write, Some scientists think Earth's ocean formed when icy comets hit the planet. But new research suggests a different origin for the oceans. They simply seeped out of the center of the earth. The finding published in science suggests that a reservoir of water is hidden in the earth's mantle more than 400 miles below the surface. Try to refrain from imagining expanses of underground seas. All this water, three times the volume of water on the surface, is trapped inside rocks. Called ringwoodite, the rock is bright blue and is only formed at high temperatures 
and pressure in the earth's mantle. The water would have been squeezed out of the rocks, almost as if they're sweating, Stephen Jacobson of Northwestern University told the new scientist. This research adds to our understanding of the complexities of the water transport throughout the sky, across the oceans, and into the ground. The water cycle involves more than just the water that circulates between the atmosphere, oceans, and surface waters. It extends deep into the Earth's interior as the oceanic crust subducts or slides under adjoining plates of crust and sinks into the mantle carrying water with it. See, to this we say, amen. For this scientific finding supports the truth of Scripture. And though the Bible is not a science textbook, it nevertheless gives us glimpses of the systems and laws that God has set in motion. Again, in speaking of the systems, we further see a mention of the water cycle in Proverbs 3. Solomon writes that the Lord caused the skies to drip with dew. Now, I dare say that all of us have, as, as children have, have probably played in the rain or even looked at freshly formed snow that falls on the ground. And it is beautiful, but it is also vital and necessary for a supporting life. And the function and beauty of creation all points to a skillful craftsman. Now, consider also that the wisdom of God is displayed not only in nature's function, but also in its design. Uh, growing up as a, as a, as a kid, um, what I wanted to be was a comic book artist. And so <clears throat> I would um, draw characters and I would uh, give them background stories. And oftentimes the, uh, the stories and the drawings would look a lot like the uh, TV shows or the comic books that I read. And I would dare say that um, those who came up with the, the, uh, the, the comics or the TV shows, they got their ideas from something else. And so we see this, this uh, copying of things that came before. We call it inspiration. And if we go back far enough, we see that behind all of the inspiration and, and copying that takes place, we see a lot of that being based on God's uh, creation and nature in general. Again, I think of another example um, of a man by the name of Otto Lilienthal. He was referred to as the father of aviation. He was the one that basically inspired the Wright brothers to develop the airplane. And do you know where his inspiration came from? It came from studying birds in his youth. And of course, who created the birds? The God of the Bible. Again, today we hear this buzzword regarding artificial intelligence. 
They say that it'll replace the labor force and, and lead to the end of humanity, they say. Um, Geoff Jeffrey Hinton, who has been referred to as the godfather of AI and a pioneer in the field, has said that his work of neural networks, which is the uh, uh, basis that is used in, um, in Google and chat, GPT. He says that his work on AI was largely based on him trying to understand the human brain. Again, we see that many ideas can be in fact traced back to God, the original designer, the one who drew inspiration from no one, the one who by wisdom created everything with such purpose and design. Now returning to Proverbs, one writer sums it up this way. He says, See how this great architect hath established the heavens, fixing all their bright luminaries in their respective orbits, such a glorious canopy set with such sparkling diamonds, each of these departments declares his knowledge in the earth, breaking up the depths, gathering them up into rivers and streams for the refreshment of men. In the heavens, collecting the moisture into dew, dropping down fatness upon the parched ground, each of these countless drops falling from this fountain of life. Thus does every particle of the universe glitter with infinite skill, the earth, its pavement, and the heavens, its ceiling, declares the glory of God. To this again we say, Amen. <clears throat> now, the fact that creation declares the glory of God was something that men of science understood. Men like Isaac Newton and Richard Boyle, Johannes Kepler and Michael Faraday, who once wrote, God has been pleased to work in his material creation by laws, and the creator governs his material works by definite, definite laws resulting from the forces impressed on matter. The beauty of electricity is that it is under law. The laws of nature as we understand them, are the foundations of our knowledge of natural things. Today, however, men of science have become wise in their own eyes. They have divorced the study of science from God and have believed in a lie. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, Verses 18 to 25, he says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, Paul says that the existence of God is evident in man. It is evident in man because of the evidence in creation. In other words, though God is invisible, his handiwork is not. General revelation, that is to say, nature clearly reveals God's existence and points to certain attributes of God, certain attributes such as his eternality, his omnipotence, and his self-existence. We see evidence of God's existence all around us, and yet mankind has rejected him. But to reject God in creation is to reject wisdom. And when you reject wisdom, all that remains is folly. Again, this is what Paul says in Romans 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They say things like, we have radiometric dating. We have geological layers. We have fossils. We have evolution. What do you have? The Bible? Religious dogma. They say, kids, if you want to know what the truth is, then you need to follow the science. You see, science doesn't have any biases. Wherever the truth points, that's where we go. And we saw how that played out, didn't we, during the pandemic. You think that this is new? You think that science never lies? Or that scientific conclusions are never influenced by an agenda? You think that just because a majority of men conclude that something is true, that that actually makes it true? Again, go back to the pandemic and think about how many things that were initially considered to be conspiracy theories 
that soon later on was revealed to be true or at the very least to be a reasonable conclusion. And so if you put your trust in the science above the Bible, then you need to go back to Solomon's earlier admonition in chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding or any group of men's understanding. Now, not a scientist, and I don't pretend to understand all of the theories in detail, but one thing that I do know is that if the science contradicts the Bible, then the science must be wrong, plain and simple. Now, ultimately, the problem is not science itself, but rather the scientist. Science will glorify God if the scientist is redeemed. And so today, there is still a need for true men of science. Scientists that unashamedly base their research upon the foundation of the existence of God. Scientists who produce a science not separate or even in opposition to religion, but a science that is sacred. Now, in times past, there was a sacred and secular divide. The truly holy work was reserved for the monks and the priests, while everyone else performed less holy but necessary jobs. Now, by the time of the Reformation, one of the things that we see the church begin to embrace is that all of life is sacred. Even your job is a calling from the Lord. My life from Monday to Saturday is no different than my life on Sunday. And so Martin Luther, for instance, says that the idea that the service to God should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like, is without doubt but the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in church and by works done therein? The whole world could abound with services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchen, workshop, and field. What Martin Luther says is that we should treat all work as holy and do all work to the glory of God. Again, John Calvin later comes along and says, it's an ancient error that those who flee worldly affairs and engage in contemplation, are leading a more angelic life. We know that men were created to busy themselves with labor and that no sacrifice is more pleasing to God than when each one attends to his calling 
and studies to live well for the common good. And so all work is good. Science is good. But science became corrupt when the devil separated science from religion and then turned science into a religion. And today there is once again this divide between the sacred and the secular. This divide is most clearly manifested in the area of science and religion. But as Christians, we can embrace science as the men of old did and even use it as an instrument to glorify God. Now, in closing, there are many points of application that we can draw from our study. However, I want to focus on three in particular. The first point of application is this. You can glorify God in whatever vocation you pursue. Currently, there are four elders here at Grace Fellowship Church, and I thank God for each one of the men that I serve with. In the first place, being a pastor is a most noble and holy calling. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. And yet, this calling is not one that all men should pursue. I remind you also of the admonition of James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, whether you preach the gospel or hear the gospel preached on Sunday, we both are called to glorify God in all that we do. And so... You can preach the greatest sermon ever to unbelievers by how you conduct your work. Work as unto God and not unto man. Study your craft, become the expert, and glorify God. And to the ladies who homeschool, exhort your children to love learning. Exhort them to be inquisitive. And most of all, to never be ashamed of a philosophy of education that is based upon the existence of God. Second, the power of God in creation is a great encouragement for God's people to pray. Meditate upon the fact that we have an audience with the one who created everything out of nothing. Think about how he invites us to come and make our requests known to him. And then call to remembrance his promises to answer our prayers. 
in 1 John 5, 14 to 15, the apostle says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. And so I say to you, is there a financial need? Then go to the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Is there sickness? Then go to the one who healed every type of disease and affliction whilst he walked among us. Are you struggling with singleness? Then go to the one who created man and woman in his own image. Go to him with confidence in prayer and cast all your burdens upon him, for he cares for you. Now, still you say, I know he has the power. I know he invites me to come, but I don't know if it's his will. And this is true with some things. In some things, we need to say along with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, this is my desire, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And this is, this is not a lack of faith, but rather it is an act of humble submission to our Lord as king. Ultimately, God knows what's best. But you should still come, even when there is uncertainty about the outcome. On the other hand, we are not left to wonder what God's will is in many things, for he has made it clear in his word. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for instance, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God, who created the universe, has the power and is willing to free you from sexual immorality? If you do then go to him in prayer and seek his power to free you from this sin. Again, John chapter 6, verses 40, we read, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. To those of you apart from Christ, do you know that God has power to save? That the same God that made all of creation can make you a new creation. Again, he has the power. He is able. He is willing. So go to him in prayer. 
Now this leads us to our final point of application. In the hymn that we sing, <clears throat> How Great Thou Art, the songwriter states, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. You see, this is the conclusion that we should reach after reading Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. God, you are great. You are great in creation, for through it, your wisdom is displayed. Now, for the believer, God's wisdom does not end in creation. It continues into redemption. And so the songwriter continues, And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And then the chorus. Then sings my soul, my Savior, my, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Again, God, you are great. And at this point, <clears throat> I can't help but think of other songs that are sung. Songs that are sung in heaven, the words of which are recorded in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The first song of heaven was, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. But now the song of heaven is, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. May we contemplate this day on the greatness of our God, both in creation and in redemption. And may it cause us to worship him now and forevermore. Amen? Let's go to Lord in prayer. God, you are great. You are worthy to be honored and adored and praised. As we look around, we see your wisdom on display in all that has been created. And yet still, there is far 
exceedingly greater wisdom in you sending your son to die on behalf of your people. We thank you for you are the all-wise God. You are wise in, in your creation and you are wise in the new creation which you are bringing about which is even right now a reality in those who lay hold of Christ. I pray this morning that all those who are apart from the Son may indeed look to Christ, may indeed believe upon him, the wisdom of God, that they may indeed have eternal life and be partakers and sharers Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day that we can come together as your people. And we pray for the, the next hour that praises and, and honor may continue on in the words that, that are sung and the scripture that is read and the word that goes forth. May it stir us up once more to honor and worship you. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.